Hi everyone, welcome to episode 18 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. Again, we're recording from our base here on the beautiful Dingle Peninsula in, in County Kerry. I hope you all had a lovely um, enjoyable week since the last podcast and I hope you all are all staying safe at the moment through these difficult times. Um, they seem to be getting worse and worse rather than getting better, but look, we have to, have to stay optimistic and... Um, upbeat if this is your first time listening to the podcast we'd really appreciate if you could go back to episode one and have a listen please do rate review tell your friends family whoever you may know about the podcast it would really mean a huge amount to us any interaction that you or your friends may have about the podcast on social media please do tag us and tag the guests too would like to give a big shout out to our sponsors grg sports who are doing excellent work up there in mayo they're um but in their order now for Christmas at the moment, so be sure to to get onto them, and they will definitely sort you out. Whether you're a sports team or a, a football team or even um, a corporate site, they'll uh, they'll definitely come up with something for you. Um, so be sure to to touch base with the guys. On this week's episode, we are delighted to be joined by Munster star and current Hermitage Green man Barry Murphy. Having won 71 caps for Munster and scoring 12 tries, the UL Bohemians man was forced to call a time in his career at the age of 28. Murphy was part of the Munster squad that stormed to the Heineken Cup success in 2006 and 2008. He announced himself really onto the scene with Munster uh, in that game against Sale Sharks. In the old Tolman Park, that we'll, we'll all remember for the the remarkable singing, um, and the the stadium was definitely lifting that night. The Limerick man was the only try scorer when the All Blacks came to Limerick in two thousand eight, and Murphy's try was the only one uh, the All Blacks conceded in the course of their victorious five match tour that year. Life after rugby had been very very busy for for Barry. You know, with Hermitage Green and with the podcast he had with Joe Doddy, and up to the latest podcast that he's he's doing Andrew Trimble called Potholes and Penguins. So we have a lot to cover. Hi Barry, welcome to an interview podcast. How are you keeping doing these weird and difficult times? Uh, I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me, Jamie. I'm. Um, yeah, it feels like we're we're. I don't know. Th- through the worst of it or um i i found the first few months very weird uh, as everyone did i i enjoyed parts of it i'm a young family so i was getting stuck into raising the kids and being around them and uh loved it to a certain degree but then i found it very uh difficult at the same time to not have a routine and that kind of crack and i missed doing my normal thing <clears throat> um this point, I feel like I've adjusted massively to it. Uh, I'm not missing like huge parts of um, social life. I'm getting to see all the people that I want to see, my family and friends. But um, my job as a musician is, um, in, in terms of live and performing, is gone. So that's very difficult. And don't know when it's coming back. There's no light at the end of the tunnel right now. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, mad, but we're getting on with it, you know, trying to fill my day with other things. And is there, it like, have you kind of tried to adapt to new ways of, of getting the music out there, you know, with the outlook that probably live gigs won't be happening for uh, another while? Yeah, we've, we had an album recorded 
in the bag, done and dusted by February. Thank God, because it's a, uh, it um, it it was it was just bad timing in that we were supposed to release the album on the fifth of June with huge summer tours and and a whole year basically, and uh, releasing of an album basically is something that you plan three years in advance. So for us to have it recorded and ready to go and release in June was um and then for all this to happen we obviously didn't release it so it was a disaster in that sense because you when you release music it's very much about momentum and how you build momentum and and uh book a load of gigs after you've you've released it that you can play the songs for the first time live and um and having to scrap that was very hard but at the same time we have the music there so we we ended up releasing a single instead in the at the start of June that I felt fitted quite well with the emotion that maybe was being felt around the world at the time. And it was a, a nice song that captured, I feel, a lot of that. And that was the reaction we got. So that was a, a nice thing to have. And then we've got this full album. They're going to actually do the most random thing and release it track by track for the next six months. Um, and actually, I'm giving you a hot take or, or a, a, an exclusive here because that's never been we haven't announced that yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure my management will be delighted. Um, <laughs> but it's just a way to do something different because if you release an album like right now, and we've to be honest, we've done this in the past where you release music, and it might you know I'm sure you, you know yourself when you listen to it or digest music, it's it's hard to really listen to one album over and over again there's so much music available to you, you kind of maybe top and skip. Whereas when we were younger, you'd take an album and you'd listen to it until the CD wore out because you actually had to buy it. Whereas now with Spotify and iTunes, you've every song ever written at the touch of your fingers. So albums I feel get lost in the ether and they can just, songs especially, you could release and have 13 tracks in an album and people might only hang on to three or four of them and the rest will be lost. So we just decided that we're going to release a song every month for the next six months. And by the end of it, we'll have half an album out, maybe even more, 10 tracks, and then have on the last day release the final three. So um, it's that's our different approach, I suppose. And it's it, that will allow us to keep momentum and keep in people's uh, you know mindset or whatever, just to have ourselves there. And I feel like, if people need music to get them through this time as well, I certainly feel like I need it. I'm scouring the internet every morning looking for anything new that's been released that I can just dive into for the day. That's uh, one part of my morning is to kick me off here listening to new music and stuff. So it's great to have it. Um, in terms of live music, I don't know, man. When you tell me, <laughs> <laughs> just sort of, um, out of curiosity, like how would you get yourself in the head space to write songs? Are you the do that like you be writing the songs or does someone else be writing? Them? Uh, we all write them. So um we well, three of us primarily will write. Uh Dara, the guitarist, is a brilliant writer, writes a lot of um unusual songs, I feel. He very much writes a Hermitage Green song. If you hear something you go, that's Hermitage Green. So usually Dara has written that because he's just got a very unusual technique and he's a brilliant guitarist, but he's got, he's a poet as well. Um, Dan, my brother writes and uh, he's, 
I don't know, he's writing bangers at the moment and just writing really, really interesting songs and use a lot of different uh, instruments, didgeridoo, harmonica, beatboxing, guitars, slide guitar. The guy can play like 12 different instruments and stuff. So um, he writes very weird songs, but I love, I, I like, I love both of their techniques of writing. Um, and that's also a nice thing that you can actually enjoy, you know, without, uh, you know, without, it be, you can get a bit self-conscious about writing your own songs. I certainly do. And be a little bit shy about presenting them. Whereas when it's the lad songs, I, I would, I would rave about them all the time. And then when I write myself, I, I struggle to sit down a lot and like write. You often hear of musicians who sit down and just bang out songs every day. And I might write for a year, year and a half. I'll take, you know, I'll just get myself into a zone where I'll start getting up early in the morning, 5 a.m. and write before I've even woken up. And uh, my writing will take 20 minutes. And that's it. I'm out. And then uh i'm not very dedicated i'm not very disciplined so it's kind of this i projectile vomit is what i always describe it as where sometimes it mightn't even i've no idea what i'm writing but it just comes out and you just scribble it down and maybe sing a melody and and then you almost make sense of it afterwards i don't know if that makes sense to you but it's uh it can be just words it's it's very weird it can be just like you. And then you'd be like, where the fuck did that come from? What, what does it mean? And then someone asks you to describe what the song is about. And then you, you go, well, I think it's about. And then you'll come up with something. And you're like, fuck, that's what that's about. And, uh, and that's hard because I, I'm sure like you might like a song that you think it's about a certain thing. And, you know, I heard Sting talk about this recently about every breath you take to all that song and yeah. he's like um that's like that's about a stalker basically um and people think that that's a love song and he wrote it about stalking you know st- the, someone stalking someone and uh people ask him you know we're gonna play will you play that at our wedding or we've had that at our wedding on our first dance and stuff and he's just like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> some people people make their own interpretation of what a song is about and that's what's so brilliant about it but um uh yeah so for me it's as i said projectile vomit perfect um i suppose look we'll, we'll bring it back to the to you know the start and we'll, we'll finish then with um judge green later on but um before i go on any further um what's your earliest memory of of rugby um because I, I know you, you grew up very close to Tolman Park. I did. Um, I grew up in Corbally, which is, um, it's as the crow flies about, you know, five 500 metres, maybe a little bit more from Tolman Park. I could see it from my bedroom window. Um, and uh, it, back then, I suppose, growing up, Tolman Park wasn't what it is now, and it wasn't even what it was in when you know before the stadium was was uh developed in 2008 it was a small field that okay a lot of stuff had happened there but there wasn't a huge amount of rugby played there shannon would play there occasionally bowls would play there occasionally so it wasn't like i didn't have a huge affiliation to Thomond park um what uh but my dad i suppose like had a had a huge uh influence on my 
my love of rugby. Um, he played with Bowes. His whole family actually played with Young Monsters, and he grew up with Young Monsters and very steeped, um, you know, in the, the, the traditions and the culture of the club, the you know presidents and uncles that were presidents and that kind of stuff. So, but he ended up going off with his friends and playing with UL with Bowes, who were Bowes at the time, and they were, bit, you know, the Bohemian, I suppose. Um, their uh, philosophy is to go out and just play exciting rugby, and it's anyone from all over the world. If you move to Limerick or if you, you know, from work or whatever, and you you want to join a club, it was join Bowes, and you just go out and play rugby, and it's there wasn't a huge amount of like tradition within the club uh like St Mary's or Shannon or 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 St Young Monsters or Thomond or Gary Owen. it was built on a little bit more of a I don't know a little bit of a renegade I suppose that would be my romantic view on it anyway that's the way I, I looked at it growing up and he brought us out there as kids there was seven of us in the neighborhood and we used to all go out there and uh, my earliest memories first of all is watching him play in Bowles when I was a kid, he he hadn't retired yet, so it was just watching him and those Saturday afternoons and the coffee, and then um, it was him coaching me under sevens, under eights, and uh, I just I think I I loved it. I, just, I immediately I, I loved it. I think I um whatever it is about young fellas loving a ball. I have my kid here now, and the second I presented a ball to him, it was his first word two weeks ago was ball. And I, <laughs> So there's something in the genes there, like the jet, the jet. I think there definitely is. You know, if I, I was so obsessed with a ball, and it didn't matter if I was playing on my own or with with anyone else, I was just on the road with a ball all day, every day for my entire childhood. And surely that has to be, um, I suppose what's the what? What would you, you know, copied and imprinted on him, and likewise for my dad. So um, it's pretty natural for me to be obsessed with it. And I suppose you, you you touch on something there that you know you, you were obsessed with the ball at, from such a young age. You grew up in in Carbally. You grew up in a state that you know called the Hermitage. That you know the name of Hermitage Green came from. Um, there was a good network of of guys your own age. Um, and do you think you know you obviously you know worked on your skills there to late hours? Do you think that benefited you? You could play for. Yeah, it it is. It's funny. Like I, I like that's my only experience. Was we grew up in a house in a state of thirty houses, and I live in a very similar estate now. And it was everything I'm doing right now in my life. I'm thinking back to what it was like for me growing up because I'm, I'm I'm looking at my kids the same. But we lived next. There was four of us, three boys and a girl, and there was four boys right next door to us. And the four lads next door were phenomenal athletes. Like all six foot seven six foot six six foot five six foot four huge guys that all played for bowls played for munchens um played hurling football soccer rugby and myself and my older brother especially i think we were you know very close in age we very much took their lead in terms of getting into sport and we were out on the road as i said the second we we get up in the morning we were out on the road kicking ball and when we got to about like five of us ended up like playing with bows underage and then five of us ended up playing AIL for bows, whatever, 15, 16 years later, played in the senior team, which I think is a, it's a, 
an incredible thing. Like it was, we at the time we didn't really think about anything about it, but the fact that we had grown up the whole way through and played uh, footballs, it was those nights when I was about 10, 11, 12, and we'd be 11 o'clock at night playing tip rugby on the road. And uh, it was, you know, neighbors coming out telling us to stop, lads, the kids are trying to sleep, will you stop? And it was three on two all the time. That was five of us, three on two. So you're, you're kind of, you know, the ta- attacking team would always have three. The defenders would always have two. And that was one of my strengths when I en- ended up play- playing professionally was how to, uh, you know, develop, uh, you know, space, I suppose, create space, put people away. I wasn't a big player. I wasn't strong. I wasn't um, very physical. So I couldn't let anyone get a hand on me, really, or they'd tackle me quite easily. So it was always about finding space and creating space. And um, I find, you know, I, my... Uh, when I look at kids nowadays, like I'm wondering, do they have the same, um, the same freedom or the same boredom, basically? Because you know, you look at kids now and they've got every gadget and you know whatever, you know, iPad, iPhone, TV to play with. And um, sometimes we didn't have a fucking rugby ball, like we had like a flat soccer ball that we were playing with, you know, to to create, you know, to create these games with. And um, I. The other side of it is that coaching back then was so, um, it was not, not, I don't want to like say it was non-existent because the coaches had put in a huge amount of time, but in terms of the detail and the actual, you know, how do you play the game? How do you, how do you actually create space? How do you, you know, the level of detail that's there now amongst coaching in, let's say, bowls down the road here, you've guys like Justin O'Connell, who's Paul O'Connell's brother is down there working his ass off. Les Hogan, who played for umpteen years with Shannon Senior, he's down there working. And like really talented rugby players who are down there teaching these kids. So that's massive. Um, we, we didn't have that growing up. But what we did do was play 24-7. Um, and that, I think, 100% stood to me. You, you went to uh, Munchens then. Um, and do you think... I, I listened to an interview you did there recently and you did reference that, you know, school wasn't for you. You enjoyed it, um, but you didn't really have that much interest in it. But playing rugby, you kind of found a sense of place. Um, what was that time with, with Munchens? I know you, you won the Junior Cup in 98. That was, was that kind of a time you realised, I want to pursue this? Yeah, I love like Munchens was across the road from the housing estate that we grew up in, so it was uh, half a mile up the road. And my dad went to Munchens when we were kids. We'd go up there and watch the senior and junior cup matches, and go to Thomond Park anytime they played. And um, that was my first experience with the spectacle of how you can become a superstar. I think that and then the Premiership, the English Premiership kicked off when I was about nine or ten. And that I think Sky Sports did such a good job at marketing that that it really grabbed my attention as well. And, you know, as any old club, that was like, wow, I want to be on the pitch when these all these fans are screaming your name. And when you went down to Munchen's matches, it was all lads dressed up in, in the gear, watching the game and megaphones and chants and songs and stuff. So that was like, I cannot wait to get to Munchens. Um, and when I went there, it was uh, everything I wanted it to be. It was exactly as you'd imagine. Everyone just geared towards rugby. Um, and school was, I found school tough. I wasn't, 
I just wasn't academic. I'm not, I, the, the, you know, the, leave, the old classic leave insert did not suit me in the slightest. Um, not, not a great attention span. Parents are incredibly liberal people and left me off the hook completely and just said, you do what you do whatever you need to do and wouldn't have uh, drilled um, education into me as such. So uh, it was, yeah, I got away with it for three years probably and loved every bit of the rugby, won the Junior Cup at Munchens and some incredible times. And, um, we, we even winning that was, was mind-blowing. It hadn't been won since Anthony Foley lifted or something like that. So um, we felt we'd achieved something that was the school had been starved of. And it was a dream. And I, I kind of, the reality of maybe being a professional rugby player or at least playing for Munster, was certain, suddenly it became a reality. And uh, I loved it. But then went on to play senior rugby and it was the exact opposite. I fucking hated it. It became, I think that was because more the leave insert became so overwhelming and what I was going to do with my life because I didn't, I didn't have, I wasn't very good at school so I didn't know. There was nothing outside of rugby for me. It was like, if you're, if you're not a good rugby player, then you're going to go work in where with, you know, build inside or something like that. And, uh, and I didn't, yeah, I didn't, you, you then get the, the pressure of that's not good enough to go work in a, you know, get a, get a, whatever, a, uh, a trade or something like that is always looked down upon, even though, why, why the fuck is that? At the time, the 90s, it was going to college, it was everything. If you didn't go to college, you were some sort of a failure, um, which is bizarre bananas, but um that was it and the pressure of that had made me end up resenting rugby i think because we were knocked out in the first round of the senior cup by crescent and i hated it at the end of it when did um like when did you know this resentment turn into you know start to dilute a bit and you began to kind of love the game again i left school and uh went took a year out and just went working uh in a what was it plant and tool hire company uh down here literally 500 meters away from my house now which is quite weird because it's 20 years ago um and i was just fucking milling around doing odd jobs for them driving diggers driving dumpers and stuff and uh getting a few quid in my pocket and steal stealing diesel from them uh from my dad's car <laughs> and uh and then I started playing club rugby. I was still underage for senior rugby in school, but I wouldn't repeat. I refused to repeat my leaving cert. I was like, fuck, I'm not putting myself through that again, even though I was still underage for, um, and I'd, I'd gotten far enough with the Irish schools the year before. I didn't play, but I got into all the trials. So I was kind of like, my parents were trying to make me go back to the leaving cert. They could play Irish schools and all that. I was like, nah, I'm out of here. So I was still underage to play for bowls. So I'm back and played 18s club rugby, which, you know, is nothing really. 18's club rugby is, there's no competition. It's just a bit of crack. Anyone that's left school and hasn't done transition year. So we, it was all my mates that I grew up with playing with bowls, just back doing what we love doing, fucking drinking and having the crack and playing from, living for the weekend, playing Saturdays and going on the piss. And um, I started kind of training a bit, started going to the gym, probably 
um, to look fit as opposed to become you know anything decent in rugby and started playing really well with the freedom I think of not um, not having any expectation on me and that that I loved it I absolutely loved it and then went playing 20s the next year with Bowes at 18 and I think yeah that that those few years out of school without the pressure of the dreaded leaving cert I think it helped me realize that I actually it wasn't rugby that I hated it was school I don't know do you remember the you probably do we had the AIL matches during the 90s and they were supposed to be absolutely remarkable like in the crowds and the, the atmosphere I've only heard yeah. stories like um could you give us any kind of snippet or insight into it yeah so I was as a Bulls fan they were few and far between um my dad would have played in a lot of those big matches back in the 80s because he was uh both were decent back then and he played the senior cup finals 12,000 people in in uh Thomas Park um but Bose had dropped off a bit by the time I I was old enough but my a neighbor across the road from us uh Paul O'Byrne is his name he was heavily involved with your monsters and his his young fellow was five years younger than me but uh obsessed with rugby so I was just fucking hang around with him and play play rugby with him he started bringing me to games when I was about 10 or 11. And it was Young Monsters versus Gary Owen and Young Monsters versus Shannon. It was phenomenal. You know, we'd be sitting, you don't know, remember those videos where you'd see people sitting on the pitch. Yeah. You could get young lads, young lads were allowed to sit on the pitch and watch and up against the boards. And 12,000 people don't bark. It was, uh, it was exceptional. It was the year that the Cookies won the, the IL, which was 94, I believe. And um, that again was that whole well the stardom. These guys were superstars, um, Gerald's and uh, and these fellas who were the classes and all these guys. You're like, you know, you you want to be them basically. I'd love to be able to be these Limerick heroes because they were the closest thing we had to superstars. But at the same time, they were just fucking lads, lads from Limerick. Um, it was incredible like to think back and I'm so glad that I got to experience it on a small level because as you said it's 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 gone a long time now. Like towards I suppose ninety seven, ninety-eight that had kind of dropped off, unfortunately, and I don't think we'll ever see it again. Oh. Um no, definitely it, the, the stories I hear from it like it, it was supposed to be remarkable. Like in the games were hard hitting, like no rules, it was <laughs> yeah, yeah. no cameras. Yeah. Yeah, my dad's a few good stories, man, about being taken out, like, you know, being accused of throwing a boot in the first minute of a game against the old monsters and called out from the sideline, like, number seven, he threw a boot. And then he's followed around the pitch for the next 20 minutes until someone, this is a senior cup final, like 12,000 people, someone caught him with a boot in the face and fucking ripped his nose open and he was... Uh, had to be taken off, you know that kind of stuff is uh, that was run of the mill stuff in AIL rugby in Limerick back then, and the history of it is incredible. Where like Leinster teams wouldn't come down here and play, you know, they wouldn't come and play Limerick teams. The Ulster teams, to be fair to them, were the only ones that would actually play against. I think Gary Owen and and Bowes, they wouldn't they wouldn't play against Shannon or the Cookies or anyone like that because they were fucking dangerous. Um, 
it's it's a, there's a phenomenal history in it. I hope someone does maybe a modern day documentary. There's been a few about it over the years, but it's uh it's definitely one one that like before a lot of these guys, I suppose, unfortunately, move on and and die. Um, it'd be great to just get their you know the stories out of them because it's it's uh it really is the heart and soul of Irish rugby for me. You know, I suppose the the noughties was definitely a, a remarkable year, remarkable you know ten years from Munster rugby. But that kind of it was a steady progression, wasn't it, from let's say the early noughties all the way through to when they, you know, when Munster did reach the the summit. What was it like, was saying in the the, the early noughties? You know, when did the kind of the support and the fan base really kind of develop, or was that was it always kind of there? No, it wasn't at all. Um, I spoke I spoke to David Wallace about this last week and he played in that infamous game in 1997 in Dora Doyle between Leinster and Munster where there was 200 people at it um, for an interprovincial game. Um, so, you know, they were there on the big occasions when Munster would play Australia or Munster would play the All Blacks, um, which was once every few years. And, uh, but, but, when it became when it was interprovincial games, there weren't there was no crowds there at those games. It was very much crowds were there for like Corcon and crowds were there for you know, once it was like when the when the European Cup kicked off in ninety seven, Corcon and Young Munsters and Gary Owen tried to put in teams into the European Cup as opposed to going in as Munster because they were they you know, would have seen themselves as bigger sides than Munster. Um, but the IRFU obviously stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. Um, so that'll just show you what level Munster were at back then. It was completely amateur, but obviously Gareth Fitzgerald had the bigger picture in mind and, um, and the IRFU. So it, I remember really 98, 99, I was 16 and going to Munster, Australia, and then uh, they played Harlequins, they played Saracens, and they played, started winning, played Leicester, started Billy beating these teams, PNR, World Cup winning captain for um, for South Africa, coming to Thorn Park and getting beaten by Saracens, or for Saracens. Then you started going, hang on a second, what's going on here? And like anything, it just caught fire. Um, and it wasn't, it was the manner in which they were playing. I think that was the most important thing. It wasn't, uh, you know, it was completely organic. It was with, you know, people like those guys weren't superstars then. There was no one had heard of Mick, you know, Mick Galway outside of Shannon. No one had heard of these fellas. They were, they were uh, just regular lads, but they were doing, the, you know, everyone would have put the other professional teams in England, especially on a pedestal. But when you come, none of them had come here before. But you packed Tunnel Park with 12,000 people who are seasoned, vicious supporters. You know, that it was the most, it was an absolute like boiling pot. Like, you can't compare it to anything today, even, even, even 2006, which some of the lads would say were the best atmosphere they've ever played in some of the games there. But I still think back then they were, it was, um, it was something quite different. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, It really was an incredibly organic and special time for, for Irish Monster Rugby. And to, 2003 then, uh, I think, was when, you know, things kind of started to, to go to the next level for you. Um, you were 
forced to come home from from Boston. Uh, you went over on a J one. Yeah. <laughs> was it a good decision to come home or not? It most certainly was. I think. Um, yeah, like as I said, I was a fan then. When I left school, I was like just playing away and loving watching rugby. My dad like took me to to 2000 to the Ironing Cup final when I was a few weeks before my leaving cert. Probably wasn't a good idea. <laughs> um, and then 2002 to the the final against Leicester in in Twickenham, uh, or sorry, that was Cardiff. And uh, we went to we just we'd go to as many games as we could and um, never in my wildest dreams that I think that I'd ever play for them. Honest to God, I was just having a crack. I was in college at this point. I'd, I'd left. I'd left work. I'd went back to college, um, and uh, went on a J one to America. Before I left, I went on the J one. I did a, a trial for Monster Twenty Ones out in Dora Doyle, and I, I was like, "Fuck's sake, I have to go to this thing." And uh, I hate those probables versus possibles. Those tw- those games that used to go on, and I was on the possibles which means you're not getting picked and I was on the bench for the possibles which means you're definitely not getting picked and I remember I was on the bench with Donica Ryan and Ian Dowling and I was in between the two of them and I couldn't work out which one was more insane than the next they were both weirdos (laughs) Donica Ryan he was at another level of weird and uh, Dowling was yeah I couldn't understand what either of them were saying. I was like, fuck's sake, I have to go on the field with these two kids now. And they brought us on at halftime. Dunners was like a machine. He just caught the first kickoff um, and just plowing into lads. And Dowling was playing 12, I was 13. And Dowling, no one could tackle Ian Dowling. He was just falling off and then he was just offloading to me. And I scored a few tries. And I got called back for a trial three months later while I was on my J1 in Boston for a second trial I was like uh, nah I'm not coming home having too much crack I was like 70 kgs completely emaciated eating pot noodles for, for breakfast uh, dinner and du- dinner and lunch uh, and my dad was trying to get me home I wouldn't go home my uncle actually rang me and said my dad will never talk to me again if I didn't come home so I came home thankfully played the second trial got on the team and we won the Interpro and then got picked for the Irish 21s that year and uh, played the World Cup the following year. And then got my, actually before the World Cup, got a call into Munster. I got my first three Munster games at the end of that season. So from a J1 in August where I didn't want to come home, uh, by March I'd played my first three games for Munster. So that was, it was cool. It was a cool way to do it, I suppose. Not the ideal way to do it, because certainly physically, mentally, I was not ready for it at all. You know, but um, it was just a different time. There was different, uh, you know, there was no academy. There was different stepping stones. It was just who's next. You know, if someone gets injured, who's next? And they look around and they see the one person, you know, may have played well for their club the weekend before and he gets the shout. And Whereas now there's such a long line of lads the clubs have thought right the way through as to like they'll get an injury in six places in a team they know where the next person's coming from whereas for me it was one injury to Mike Mullins and you get a shout so weird times What was it like we say walking into the dressing room you know with the likes of Nick Galway you know you'd Axel and you'd Paul O'Connell String and you know, O'Gara they were probably younger at, at that time but 
you know, what was it like? You say walking into the dressing room, knowing a couple of months beforehand you were you were over in Boston having the crack. <laughs> <laughs> Being from Limerick and knowing them, and like my my dad was president of Bowls for years, so I'd have been in in an in Tomo Park. Bowls would have played in their home matches in Tomo Park, so. I kind of felt like I'd been around that atmosphere. I always remember Axel talking about this and a lot of people talking about Axel when he came up with when his dad, Brendan, played for Shannon and Ireland and and Axel would have been there in the dressing room all the time. I was kind of like that to a certain degree. I was always in the dressing room with Bowes when they were, you know, I was their mascot when they were under, when I was at 12, 13, 14, when they were playing away matches. I would, like back, getting flights to, Belfast from Shannon with the Bowl senior team and I was their little ball boy or whatever going with them and so I'd have been always around that rugby fraternity in Limerick I kind of I suppose I might have got it a little bit um I knew basically that when you walk in the door you shut the fuck up you sit in the corner and you don't say a word and you keep your head down and um that stood to me massively because I went in with a, quite a few other lads at the same level and I think probably even could have been better rugby players than me, but maybe didn't understand the culture and understand how to to fit in, uh, which might sound weird because in this day and age, I suppose it's everyone about being individuals, which is which is amazing and, and the way it probably should be. But back then, it was uh, you don't be yourself. <laughs> That's the last thing you are. Do you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you're like, don't be yourself. Be fucking sit in the corner and shut up and, and I remember Keith Earls coming in and he's the exact same he fucking got it because he was in the dressing room with his dad the whole way up and uh, and some lads come in like Dowling would have come in with a different approach like no one knew who the fuck he was he's from Kilkenny he had to come in and, and kind of just he'd uh, uh, what's you know out fucking man the biggest man there a little bit you know what I mean so it was a little bit of that but for me it was like fit in don't say boo to the ghost just mail through as much work as you can and show these fellas that first and foremost it's about working your ha- your ass off and making as many tackles that was all I wanted to do was just make tackles tackle, 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 tackle. show them that I can make as many tackles and it doesn't phase me and, I, and my fitness was all I wanted to do was run and be the last one standing in all the runs and all the fitness stuff and at least if you got that they can't question your effort um, they can, you know, if they question my ability, fair enough, but they can't question my commitment to my ability. And then, sorry, on the other side of it, fucking characters like the banter that you, you'd be just sitting there watching the claw and Golov and O'Connell and Axel, and like, what an absolute honor to be sitting there watching these lads. Um, like, I remember Golov used to come in and, and put, like, his, I just, I remember it so vivid now because I'm dealing with it at the moment where he, the shitty nappies that your kid would have, but he used to hide them in like Hayes's gear bags and he'd hide them under Hayes's bonnet, hide them in the glove box. And that kind of, that kind of track was just, it was so leveling. I think that there, there were such children behind it all. There were such, um, such uh, just lads having the crack weren't phased by what they were doing. It wasn't they weren't thinking themselves as superstars or heroes or anything like that. It was like, nah, we're just doing it. And Declan Kidney was absolutely amazing at 
creating that environment and like every day he'd bring us all into the room and his first comments in his chat would always be about isn't it great what we're doing we could be sitting in an office but we're not we're here and we're here with our friends and we're playing rugby and that was the tone and it might seem a little bit lame but for me i got it straight away i, I understood what he was trying to do and it was just gonna set always set that little that little playing field that we're very fortunate where we are and, and i feel it was honest and it was uh, wasn't contrived um and i feel like it was the basis for a lot of what that team achieved you you mentioned Declan Kidney there when he came in um he, you you referenced before that he did have a big impact on your career um you know he kind of made you feel at home as opposed to maybe in different circumstances that mightn't happen before but you just mentioned that he created that, that culture and that environment yeah he um I suppose it's uh, it's like if you look at Stuart Lancaster for Leinster now and, and different guys, um, Andy Friend is a really good example of the moment. I'm, I'm quite interested in listening to from Connacht. I'm quite interested in a lot of the way he's talking at the moment. There are school teachers and guys who come from a, an educational background and are very forthcoming with their ideas. And you listen to how they approach coaching and they approach uh, a group and how to get the best out of them. And Decky was of that, I think, school, obviously, because he's a teacher. He was a guidance counselor himself. He'd grown up teaching the likes of Raj and Frankie and Strings and, and uh, you know, half of that Munster team from Prez and Cork. So he developed an, a relationship with them that was um, very deep-rooted and um, at the same time, a very, you know, difficult relationship. It uh, bubbled a lot and you can see the way himself and Raj um Maybe didn't end quite well, but back then they understood each other so well. And he understood how to get the best out of those fellas. He understood that to when to back off, to let that, let that, you know, to lay that groundwork of the foundation of like what we're what we're doing here, and set the tone. And then the players took over. Like Raj coached that team, Axel coached that team. Um, Decky wasn't a hands-on kind of guy dealing with detail or pat or patterns or rough game plan. He had guys in place and he recruited very well in terms of staff around him that would have um, been very detailed in what they were doing. But I think, like if you look at the Leinster right now, Johnny Sexton runs that team. Fucking he, like he sets the tone and the lads to step in behind him. They just you know, if he's not playing Ross Pernis, they play like he plays. And that's so important to have those guys that obviously the coaches have to put their print on the team, but to have those guys that have the confidence and are given the confidence by the coach to understand that you are on the field at the end of the day. I'm not on the pitch. You are. And it's up to you. And you're as good as anyone out there to do this. And that's, I think, what Techie was so good at. For me, it was like... You were good enough when you were in Munchens. Pass the ball like you were in Munchens. That's the worst thing he said to me. And I felt like that. I felt like that for definitely the first few years. I um, I didn't need to be anyone else. I just needed to go out and just... that the, They wanted me to be a player that could run with the ball and could create space. And that's all I needed to do and work hard. And um, yeah, it was. I was unbelievably blessed to have that opportunity, and for Decky to see that in me and give me the opportunity and um, to play with that team, and especially in that 2006 year, was an unbelievable experience to 
come out of never really playing before to going to being a part of that European Cup run. And before we, we touch on that European Cup run, I I actually found it very, very funny coming across the story that you spent uh, spent a while skipping meetings and surfing out in West Clare. Was <laughs> was that before 2006? That was uh, the year before with Gaffney was there. I was, I didn't, I, didn't, uh, I had a uh, groin injury and Gaffney was a little bit of a different, a different coach. I, I, I get on well with him. I'm still really good mates with Alan Gaffney. Anytime we're touring in Australia, I go meet him in Sydney and we'll have a few pints. And, um, but back then he was very hard on me and very hard on a lot of the young lads in Munster. And it was, uh, he had a job to do and he'd, uh, people to to please so results weren't going the way and he'd fucking abuse us so I turned up late for a meeting one day and I was injured and no one noticed that I was missing literally no one noticed so I was like what's the point of me even being here so I went surfing the next day down to the hinge and that was my regular Tuesday Wednesday then when they were doing there and I knew I didn't have physio I go out surfing, and I swear I lost the daughter for three months, and no one. I didn't get one phone call. No, this is my full time job now. I was a professional player, and I was down, loving life, and it was the best thing that ever I could have done. Do you know, because I got times years later with Tony McGann where he brought in um, this regime that if you're injured, you have to be on the sideline. Um, watching every single session soaking up everything that's going on and you can't miss anything because if you when you do come back you have to be in the zone and you have to know everything's going on like a form of torture it was like fucking sitting there waterboarding just watching like hating everyone hating the coaches um doing like world of damage for my mental health whereas fat you know rewind three years before and i was down in west clear surfing sitting out in waves and you know, just thinking about, just not thinking, just out there, just waiting for a wave. I think I was the happiest I've been in, I've been in years out there. And there's no, absolutely no coincidence that it was the following year when I came back to Munster. I remember John Kelly slagging me for being a surfer dude and, and whatever the fuck. And, uh, and his wife telling me, like, he raves about you when you come home, about how odd you are and how you're not maybe a rugby player, you're, you're a surfing fellow. And I was like, fuck, that's, that's an interesting thing. And it was because I had that space. I think that's why you, you look at surfer lads who've got that little bit of space and they've got that, that um, I don't know, appreciation for no rush in life and just having a little bit of, you know, being more relaxed. And that can really get on top of you in a rugby environment where you can't escape it. Because fast forward for me four years later and I'm in that, monster team now that had now won and it was like we have to win everything and if you're not in the team you're fucked so you gotta you know if you're injured you gotta be working your ass off and you gotta be thinking about the game all the time you gotta be so focused and it ate me alive because i was injured so much and um it was very very difficult whereas in hindsight if i was to speak to someone in a similar situation now i'd be like fucking go surfing in west Clare, man forget about that until you're ready to play and then you know you can yeah. play does your, your your mindset be be better then like and you be you be, you have more appetite for it yeah exactly yeah you're you're um you know it's it's it, it's not it's not 
healthy for anyone to be it's like a form of torture as i said just watch and train and, and like for me you're you know for me now i'm not playing gigs i'm not playing music does that make me a lesser a musician because i'm not it's the same thing of being injured does that make me less a rugby player no it doesn't so I, I shouldn't be sitting here now when i'm not playing gigs watching fucking gigs all day and looking at my guitar <laughs> like <laughs> I remember years ago um used to be training in Cork and Limerick Munster. Mm. When did that join up and why did it why did it all move to Limerick? What was the the story there? It was always yeah, for my time it was always still uh Cork and Limerick and it was uh every year we would have a review at the start and end of the season and it was always the the topic of of uh, discussion was always brought to the forum. When can we become one base uh, club? Which obviously makes a hell of a lot more sense. But back then you had like so Raj Strings, John Kelly, Anthony Organ, Nico Driscoll. That's living in um, in Cork who who were had set up their whole homes there and their families there. They were never going to fucking leave. So. Um, it was it was never going to happen, but I think when the it always made sense for it to happen. But when those those lads retired, it became more um, likely that it would. And uh, I think it was 2013, maybe they did. It's it's still pretty hard because I know like the Peter Manny and Billy O'Holland and uh, Stephen Archer still live in Cork and they they travel up and down. But look, when you look at teams over in the UK, I think they all do a lot of travel over there. And uh, I've never heard the lads complain about it, but it was very hard, I must say, back in the day when you're not, we, you know, we had a back line at the time of Strings, Tomas, Raj, Paul Warwick, um, Trevor Halstead, Maths, Ru- no, sorry, Trevor's gone, Maths, Rua, Dougie, myself, Keith Earls, Dowling, Sean Payne, and where me Dowling and Champagne were the only ones in Limerick and bar two days of the week, maybe even one day of the week, you're not seeing these lads. So we're trying to do skills and trying to, you know, we're missing out on conversations that were happening between uh Rod Strings, Maps and Rua and um sorry, Keith was with us actually in Limerick as well. But you know, you're missing out on a lot of these conversations and uh, I always felt it was it was disjointed and my last year actually made a point to the squad that like uh, up until that point I'd always looked at it as a fault of the system whereas if you took it on the onus of yourself to kind of go okay well look this is the way it is maybe you should fucking make the move and pick up the phone and call these lads and, and make uh, make that connection and and I did for the last year I, to talk to Maths and, and uh, you know because he's a centre partner I speak to him regularly and and stuff but um it certainly was a weird thing but to think that we haven't won a trophy since uh since that it wasn't you know wasn't that destructive in what we were trying to achieve 2006 what a remarkable year um one thing that you know obviously the the, the beer it's game but the sale game was uh a special special game for you and one thing that I always remember looking back and I was definitely young then was the atmosphere in, in Tolman Park that night. The singing by the fans. Yeah, it was, um, that was, 
the stuff I literally dream of I think I actually dreamt about that night happening I I had you know you know I was doing a lot of visualization and sports psychology at the time and focusing on what might you know walking onto the field and what could the game present itself and I I played games in Thorn Park at Bowls I had a lot of experience with you know having good games there and scoring tries but maybe I hadn't had that much experience at Munster there so I remember visualizing scoring in that corner that night and I spoke to Wally about this last week actually Wally spoke about winning the Heineken that 2006 final where he dreamt about winning it the day of the game he fell asleep he went for a nap in, in Cardiff about three hours before kickoff and had a dream vivid dream about the whole match and it happening and he woke up and he was like fuck we're gonna win and it was like he's never felt so confident and that's i swear was kind of why i felt that night of the, the night of the sale match that i had almost dreamt it the night before and uh it was an unbelievable like like the thing about that is you look at there's no one no one has a phone no one is there's no one in the crowd or on the phones everyone if you go to a match now unfortunately we're all at it we're all on our phones we're all social you know socializing it's back then the only reason you were at that game was to watch every second and not only watch it but influence it you watch the crowd are influencing that game they're influencing the same team they're influencing us um i remember like scoring that try and vividly sitting back at the halfway line waiting for the kickoff and just being like oh my fucking god the noise was just rattling through me and i was so gone i was on another planet and I could hear a voice behind behind me, and I turned around. It was Dowling, who was the same age as me, no more experience than I had, and he's standing twenty yards away from me, and he's just looking at me, just like, "Focus, fucking focus." And I was like, "Fuck, okay, back in the zone." And it was just little moments which win games like that, you know. And it took us till the eighty-fifth minute to win that game, and while he scored and. I didn't even know we had to score again, to be honest. So unfocused I was. I thought we were like, hey, we're winning, we're grand. But we actually needed that bonus point try. Ah, look, it was uh, it was stuff dreams I made of having you know, Shabal come there and get the bait, and he got. And, um, it was one of the, you know, and you often hear Raj talk about that was the best atmosphere he'd ever played and that guy played and biggest games that you can imagine so that was uh that'll tell you what it was like what was it like being around the say the squad then you know i know you missed out on the, the final through injury how did you take that the whole thing had been such a whirlwind for me that i was probably caught up in a little bit of the drama of the whole thing and now looking back i was like okay i i was devastated I was devastated, but like you don't, I don't think you realize when you're in the middle of it the actual trauma that you're going through. Um, I, I would be very much a happy-go-lucky, positive person, so I was, um, I was always looking at the bright side. Oh, look what I, I was so lucky to be there! What a great um, achievement, and um, I'll be grand and that kind of crack. And so that was my general approach to it. I was like, yeah, uh, look fine and I was delighted and my, my spiel to the media was all like Astra I'm just an under supporter now and stuff like that um, but when you when you look back at, at what you lose out on I think that's that lasts a long time and that leaves a scar more so than physical scar of actually breaking your leg it's um, 
it's the yeah the fucking the disappointment of whatever how you could be so unlucky uh, to miss out on you know as lucky as you are to to get in the position in the first place um to have it taken away from you and sport can be just so so cruel like that and it does leave a long lasting effect on you um for sure and it took me a while to I think realize that and uh yeah look it's I was delighted obviously the the cream you know I think the saving grace was the fact that we actually went down and won it um because I I did throw myself into supporting the lads and and I loved every minute of it. The New Zealand game in 2008, another remarkable uh, moment for you. What was it like yeah. facing the, the hacker and scoring the, the try? Um, the hacker was probably the best moment I've ever had in rugby pitch. Definitely. The, the, uh, just, as you can imagine, fucking hairs in the back of your neck and both of them, like for their one where you, you had the whole crowd screaming and you couldn't hear the hacker and it was deafening and you could see it in their faces that what the fuck is going on here. And then our hacker when the lads jumped out and it was, uh, oh sorry, our one when they were screaming in the faces and their one when it was complete silence and they were like, what the fuck's going on? Um, it was just something magic is happening. That was the thought. It was like, there's there's something in the air here. And you all, you know, you seldom get those moments I think where you're going we could potentially win this and it's amazing what belief will do and the likes of Rua and Dougie they had it in buckets. Rua felt genuinely felt we were going to win that game but if it wasn't for him I don't think the rest of us would have actually realised it and bought into it um, and that's what real leadership is that's very hard to come by because how do you develop that? You know, he's, he was probably 33, 34 years of age at that stage and he played a lot of rugby. Um, you, you don't, you're not born with that. You earn it over a long, t- a long time of hardened games. And I, I, was, I, was, I was well into my career at that stage and I hadn't experienced anything like that belief that he had that night. So, um, you know, ultimately the last of the game was a, very disappointing one to lose as good as it was to be involved and to play it it was a, it was a tough one when people are always like that was a great game i'm like Fuck. <laughs> depressing you, enough you know you, you got concussed in it um I, I, my, my expression going to kind of contradict what i'm going to say but can you remember the game probably not if you were like, i don't remember the first half at all really I don't remember, like, I don't remember scoring the try. I don't remember. I, I, I remember Rua coming over, kind of telling me what to do during the try because um, I, I must have been a bit spaced out of it. But I don't really remember. More, I don't really remember. Like, I gave away I gave away their first try, which haunts me. Like, I threw a fucking dodgy offload, and uh, I don't remember that. Like, you know, it was not something I would regularly do. Um, and then the second half, I remember... I remember quite clearly and I thought it was a point about 20 minutes in where I thought we'd have it, thought we were going to win it. Um, but that just shows you the class that they have, that they could uh, take everything we threw with them and still go out on top. So, uh, look, it wasn't to be, but again, 
we had some crack at the end of that night. For the few days, for the few days afterwards, it was magic. And over your career, look, I I know you were you were forced to, you know, call time in, in your career then in, in uh, two thousand and eleven. What was the the nail in the coffin as such? You know, excuse the analogy, you know, but what? Oh, yeah. What made you? It was a, a foot injury. A foot injury that I got in a. I've been out for with an ankle injury for a year. I broke my right ankle, um, uh, which was the opposite one to my left one that I'd broken in 2006. And uh, came back from that and played a few a few months and was doing all right. And then played an A match in Nottingham. And I think it was late December and got a foot injury. Uh, I broke four or five metatarsals, four metatarsals across my left foot, fractured them. And it seemed like quite an innocuous injury, but ultimately it was a very uh, serious injury for footballers and stuff, but rarely seen in rugby. And I needed surgery that would have kept me, kept me out for about a year. So I decided not to go through with that and try and rehab it. And did it again basically kind of fractured a couple of them again about six months later and then i had to have the surgery and never never managed to come back from it um which was yeah fuck, devastating really you know never expect it to go out at 20 27 i got the injury i never expect to, to go out like that and um yeah it was rough all my life was very very rough but um, that is sport, isn't it? Oh, throughout your career, what you know, I was chatting to you there um, offline. What is your experience of concussion? You know, do you experience more of them apart from that one against New Zealand? Um, I had good few growing up, teenagers and a few, and had a few under twenties with bows. I'd about seven or eight, I reckon. Um, nasty enough ones. You usually down to shit technique in my tackle, um, get my head across, and getting a clip of a knee as opposed to going, you know, my my head the the short side of someone. And um, it was weird back then. Like my dad would have always, you know, given me the old uh, encouraging comment that like I'd stick my head where lads wouldn't stick your boot and stuff like that I'd, I'd fucking just throw myself in and I used to kind of wear that as a badge of honour and then growing up I'd get KO'd and lads would be like fuck man you were knocked out and I'd be like yeah but it was grand and you almost wear you know think you were a bit tough um, and in hindsight as you get older you're like you're fucking tick like what are you doing like you know learn how to tackle you you're gonna do damage and uh <clears throat> And I, 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 who knows what kind of damage? That's the way I look at it. Um, you know, I've listened to Joe Rogan last week talking to Miley Cyrus of all people, and she got a clip of a fucking tree when she was a kid, and she was on a quad bike and got a slap of a, tree, a branch of a tree and knocked herself out, and she reckons that it completely altered her personality. And then Joe Rogan was like, "Yeah, that's absolutely positively a thing." Um, happened loads of people 
um, and he was listing them off and people has happened to and it's you know one of the signs of a severe concussion when you're younger that younger that it can change and become if people become wilder as they get older if they become you know lose maybe inhibitions and uh, I thought about that at the time I was like fuck I've been I'm a loose enough fucker like I'll go out and I'll have a good time regularly um, and I wasn't always like that I was definitely as a teenager young I was very disciplined and dedicated and quiet shy lad but I come out of myself now that could also be just your uh, general maturing but um, you'd always wonder because it's not normal to get eight serious concussions as a child basically because your brain isn't fully developed until your mid-twenties and I I, that all-backs game was actually the last one I got and I was 25 or 26 and up until that point, I reckon I had eight where I was completely blacked out, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, who knows? I mean, who, you know, in later life, if that comes back and bites in the ass with Alzheimer's and stuff, and you know, the question is whether you let your kid do it um, or not is, is, I suppose, the question. And I would, I'd let my, kid, my kids play rugby, um, but I'd certainly pay more attention to the back technique on there um, and if they were to get a numerous amount of concussions then you'd be going okay that's it came over you know how do you find that transition from you know the forced retire obviously it wasn't easy um how did you feel that that you know that kind of um void in your life um i i when when i we, we were still when i was still playing rugby we were, we'd started the band we were playing i i was just you know when you're playing rugby and you can't play because you're injured it time becomes fucking long you know I, 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 as i said I, I wasn't surfing like i used to especially with a broken foot um so i started playing a lot more music that was my i suppose the way of dealing with it at that point and that was my way of switching off and getting away from it. And my brother was, young brother was playing a lot of music. And I got chatting to him one day and his mate, and we were like, let's go play, play some tunes. And funnily enough, Felix Jones was living above me in an apartment. And we obviously played rugby together. And Felix was um, living with um, a guy that he had worked with in Leinster. Who was a banjo player? Felix played Balleron, I played guitar, and one day we we're like, let's play a few tunes, play a bit of trad. And then we started. My brother said, Do you want to go into the Kurigawa bar, which was our older brother's bar in town, on a Monday night and just go in the back room because they had to you know, just get a few pints and play tunes on a Monday night and uh, started playing. And we we're like, fuck, we're pretty good. Um, and then we would do that for two or three weeks and then he asked us to go and play in the front bar and we went out and played there for like a few people and a clue we were doing like and just messing around and then we moved to the Sunday nights and I'd say after three months there was something started happening. It was like, fuck, this is class. People were coming to regularly to see us and sit down and listen and um, uh, so all of a sudden we were a band and but I was still playing rugby so I was getting up and going training in the morning and still as disciplined as I would be but it was just nice to have something on the side 
and Felix had broken his neck as well. So it was the two of us in this weird position that he had a broken foot and he'd broken neck. Both of us, you know, were on the brink of retirement, but we were doing something exciting and, and we were loving it and we were the best of mates and it was brilliant. Um, and then unfortunately I did have to retire. Felix went on and kept playing. But um, the transition was quick. It was, it happened on a Monday in May where I was like, my foot went again. I was like, I'm done. Good, okay, grand. Announced to the squad on the Tuesday. And I finished out the last two weeks of the season and uh, just do my regular training. And then you're gone, you're out the door, like, you're fucking, you're, you're on your own. So it was very daunting, but exciting with the band. I was like, okay, let's just see what we can do. And uh, uh, I love music. I've always loved music. And I've, that was, the most natural transition for me. As I said, I wasn't really good at school. I'd never imagined myself on a kind of, kind of business. So I just wanted to play and there was something magical happening and the boys were, were brilliant and I loved playing with them and just kind of felt right. So um, I also started coaching with UF Bohemians at the time as well, which was brilliant because obviously you spent you know, 30 years of your life, whatever it was, 28, 20 years of my life, playing rugby, learn about rugby. I felt like, you know, there's no one more knowledgeable when they come out, you know, is that guy that comes out of rugby at, at whatever time he retires. He's just at the height of knowledge of the game. And he's, you know, so it's good to give back, I think, straight away at that point. And, uh, and that's so I threw myself into coaching as well. Um, probably bit off a little bit more than I could chew in terms of playing gigs and playing music and coaching at the same time. But, it was, I was just flying by the seat of my pants. Is the, the rumour is true that a number of the monster lads have shares in uh, Hermes Green? <laughs> Keith, Keith Earls was an original member, he claims. Uh, he was there on our first practice day. Uh, Dowling was also there, uh, but he, Keith can at least play four chords. Dowling couldn't even fucking hold a beat. Uh, and Felix was, of course, an original member. So, and Danny O'Reardon, uh, who former Connacht, even Leinster's on the Connacht Leinster Munster, he was actually there as well. So, fuck, it was a stronghold of Munster players involved in that uh, early days of Hermitage Green. Well, you know, over the last couple of years, you were doing the House of Rugby podcast with um, Andrew Trimble. How did that come about and is that finished now and you're on to potholes and penguins? Yeah, um, it is finished. We, we we started a couple of years ago. I got a call off someone in Joe that's, that was like, do you want to come and do this show? And um, it, it, it kind of intrigued me at the time. It was a bit, bit like, fuck, I'm out of rugby so long. I don't really know what's going on. Um, but I did like the idea of just doing something different. I've been in the band for 10 years at this point and I wanted to try something that might, um, you know, that excited me and I still did love rugby. And when uh, he asked me would I have thought of any players that would have uh, worked, I suggested Andrew Trimble because we uh, had, a, had an existing relationship from playing together for Ireland and, um, and uh, the Ireland days a few times and I just thought he was the most hilarious man I've come across and when they said yeah okay Andrew Trimble let's do it 
Uh, so I was like, right, I'm in. So I said, I'd do at least a year of it. And we did two years of it and it was, it was good. It was stressful at times. Um, didn't enjoy the dissecting too much of Munster Rugby, which uh, we're, you know, it's going through not a great time at the moment. So I found that difficult to, you know, uh, navigate myself through having to criticise them and stuff like that, which is not just not what I, I'm into. Um, and then I'm just not a natural interviewer or whatever, you know. Um, so that that was uh, daunting, but it was good. And then just at the start of this summer, we uh, decided that we wanted to go on our own. Myself and Trimble have uh, built up enough of uh, our you know, knowledge and confidence in what we want to do. And uh, it's it's been a month now and we're loving it. We're God, it's weird. It's getting weirder by the week. We're we're both into weird things, and <laughs> he's a fucking hilarious man. So um, yeah, God knows where it'll take us. We're, we've got our drummer from Hamilton Green as our producer as well, and he's a lunatic. So the sky is the limit. To be honest, we wanna we wanna do. I don't know what we wanna do, but we're we're very excited as to what it might open. Very good, very good. Um, and look, before I wrap it up, what advice would you give to people who say in you know, a similar position to you that you are like, you know, been forced to retire from a professional sport at, you know, at 28 or 29 in the prime of your career? You know, it, it's, it's obviously difficult. What takeaways have you from it? Um, I'm always sure, sure to give advice. I don't think I've, I don't give advice very often because... I've made enough mistakes um, for anyone. And what advice would I give? Um, I don't know. I'm, I've I've gone such an unorthodox route with what I've done that it's hard to tell people. You know, everyone's different. Um, I trusted my gut. My dad's always told me that from day one. You trust your gut, and your gut is another word for just stop listening to the voices in your head that create doubt, I suppose. And I've got enough of those voices that tell me that I'm not good enough and, and stuff like that. And that I shouldn't do certain things, but ultimately I've, I've learned to listen to, you know, your heart and go, this is what you love doing. And for me, it's, it's always been rugby. It's always been music. It's always been, comedy is another thing i'd like to get into so i just want to do things that make me happy that's all i could whatever makes you happy you know do it and, and that's the best bit of advice i can give well if we look on uh, on that note i will wrap it up there thanks very much barry for taking time out and coming on into View podcast very welcome jamie thanks for having me on i hope you all enjoyed that interview with barry um such an inspiring story the look a limerick man representing monster scoring against the all blacks it is really stuff of dreams um and you know lighting up Torman park that night uh was you know and his his try was a an essential you know cog in monster's victory over sale sharks in in 2006 um i still remember it just uh the singing was absolutely amazing. Uh, Fields of Anroy was been belted out. If you haven't heard it, you should definitely listen to it or, or look it up on, uh, you know, on YouTube because it, uh, it's definitely stuff of dreams and stuff definitely that uh, every every child, you know, would dream of. Um, 
playing in in uh, the you know in uh, in an atmosphere like that. From a personal perspective, it's uh, it was great you know to have him on because I do remember that time. Um, is in it's great to get insight into to a player who actually played on the pitch, you know, and who played with that team during the, the era that Munster were a formidable force. Um, look, everything goes in cycles of Linster up there at the moment now, but uh, hopefully it'll come again for Munster in the not-too-distant future. The culture in Munster at the time was very much, you know, players-driven, uh, a truly inspiring group that had a huge number of leaders, O'Gara, O'Connell, Stringer, Axel, you know, just to name but a few. It's great to see that he went from one passion to another, rugby to music. Tom Screen are doing great things, you know, in Ireland and throughout the world. They're, they travel the country and they travel the world. You know, they were down here in Anaskal in, in Kerry a couple of years ago. Um, and they've, you know, they travel to all corners of the world and they're great ambassadors for the country and great, great ambassadors for Limerick and Limerick City as well. That is all from us here on this week's episode of an Inside View podcast. Please do get in contact with the show if you have any stories from part of a team, whether it's a sports team or a corporate team. Please, please do let us know. Or if you feel like you 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 know you'd want to contribute to the show in some way, please do. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to do that, you can contact us. Uh, you can email us info at theballteambuilding.com or you can contact contact us on our social media channels. So on Instagram, you'll find us at underscore on the ball team building. Over on Facebook, it's on the ball team building. And over on Twitter, you'll find us at we are on the ball too. We're actually also on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, do check us up. Um, just the name is on the ball team building. You should uh, you should find us find us there. Uh, have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred in a fin. Talk to you all soon and thank you very much for listening.